You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. A pretty fancy bear hunt in Germany, a new IoT botnet surfaces, cryptojackers exploit a salt bug, bribing an insider as a way to get personal data, the UK's NCSC and the US CISA issue a joint warning about campaigns directed against institutions working on a response to COVID-19. Britain's contact tracing app starts its trial, Ben Yellen on AI inventions and their pending patents potential. Matt Glenn from Illumio is our guest, and he wonders if companies should break up with their firewalls. And don't get puppy scammed. You're looking for wags in all the wrong places. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Tuesday, May 5th, 2020. Reuters reports that German authorities have issued a warrant for the arrest of Dmitry Baden, a GRU operator wanted in connection with a 2015 hack of the Bundestag. The Süddeutsche Zeitung calls the warrant a bear hunt because, of course, the authorities think Mr. Baden is working for Fancy Bear. He's a person of interest elsewhere, too. There are a number of people in the U.S. Justice Department who'd like to hear from him about the 2016 hack of the Democratic National Committee. Researchers at Intezer have identified a new Linux-based botnet they're calling Kaiji. It's apparently the work of a developer in China, and it's designed to infect IoT devices in order to herd them into a botnet adapted to distributed denial-of-service attacks. ZDNet reports that Kaiji gains access to targeted devices via SSH brute force attacks. Pentest partners say they've demonstrated a disturbing proof of concept, a crying wolf attack against Commercial Aviation's Traffic Alert and Collision Avoidance System, TCAS, it's possible to induce ghost contacts in the system, and some aircraft might automatically respond to such false reports by altering course. The potential risk to flight safety is obvious. ThreatPost points out that the ghosts won't show up on radar and that pilots may well trust, probably will trust, radar more than TCAS, but the proof of concept remains troubling nonetheless. Crypto miners continue to exploit vulnerabilities in the SALT remote task and configuration framework, Computer Weekly writes that Zen Orchestra users have been affected, as have users of the Ghost blogging platform. The Register reports that Digicert has also been affected. 
The UK's National Cybersecurity Center, NCSC, and the US Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, CISA, this morning released a joint advisory warning that APT groups are targeting both healthcare and essential services. While such attacks could either be state sponsored or the work of criminal gangs, and while both kinds of threat actors have been active during the pandemic emergency, APT, Advanced Persistent Threat, has come to be functionally equivalent to state-sponsored threat actor. The advisory summarizes the goals of the campaigns as follows. Quote, APT actors are actively targeting organizations involved in both national and international COVID-19 responses. These organizations include healthcare bodies, pharmaceutical companies, academia, medical research organizations, and local governments. APT actors frequently target organizations in order to collect bulk personal information, intellectual property, and intelligence that aligns with national priorities. The pandemic has likely raised additional interest for APT actors to gather information related to COVID-19. For example, actors may seek to obtain intelligence on national and international healthcare policy or acquire sensitive data on COVID-19-related research. End quote. The threat actors are actively scanning for specific vulnerabilities in their target systems, specifically Citrix vulnerability CVE-2019-19781 and vulnerabilities in virtual private networks products from PulseSecure, Fortinet, and Palo Alto Networks. They're also engaged in large-scale password spraying attacks. The UK has been particularly concerned to block these threats, which have been particularly active against the country's biomedical research sector. The Wall Street Journal calls NCSC's response a pivot and reports that measures are being taken to protect institutions engaged in vaccine research. The venerable firewall is a tried-and-true component of cybersecurity, tirelessly keeping watch over your network, keeping the bad stuff out. But some say there's a tendency toward over-reliance on firewalls and a closer look is in order. Matt Glenn is Vice President of Product Management at Data Center and Cloud Computing Security Company, Illumio. If you think about the original firewall, it was basically the perimeter of an enterprise versus the internet. It was sort of the thing that was making sure that the internet couldn't get inside of your enterprise. So it was, you, you were either on the good side of the firewall or the adversarial side of the firewall. And it is a great perimeter device. The challenge has been, and I think that uh, most of your listeners will sort of, you know, see this, is that the threats are no longer popping through from the outside in. There's a lot of internal things that happen, right? So the first thing that a bad actor will try to do is infiltrate. How do they try to infiltrate? Malware. So instead of it coming in, you know, someone trying to, you know, pierce the firewall, what they're doing is they're relying on somebody clicking on a bad link, downloading something bad onto their uh, devices. And then, you know, suddenly that threat is now behind the firewall. And so what did organizations begin to do? They began to put fire, more and more firewalls inside of their enterprises. And that is just, you know, that creates a lot of complexity to manage all those different firewall rules. And now you're creating more and more perimeters inside of your enterprise which, you know, from a security strategy perspective is a good idea, right? And I think, you know, when Wi-Fi came in, you know, the access of the network was, you know, literally piercing outside of the four walls of a building. So, mm -hmm. you know, we see people putting more and more firewalls like in front of their data centers, right? And now what uh, I think the new sort of threat landscape is, you know, we have our perimeter firewall, our users, you know, uh, are going to get impacted at some point. 
Um, I have some customers where they actually have people working for organized crime that come into an organization as a developer. So the assumption is that you've already been breached. That's sort of the new mindset of CISOs. So how do you basically ensure that the breach that has already taken place, and you have to assume breach, that it can't spread? And the answer to doing that is segmentation. So the mm. first thing that a, a, a CISO will do is to say, oh, let's buy more firewalls to do that. Well, the problem is that driving more and more firewalls into your data center is costly and disruptive in that you know you may have to re-architect your data center to insert them. And I think that's why things are starting to break down in the report that we uh, put out, the state of uh, security segmentation sort of speaks to that point. What is the transition like? If someone wants to adopt what you're proposing here, how is that uh, that turnover period? What is that like for them? Here is the, the good news about it. There is no change to the underlying infrastructure to do it. There's no sort of modification of the network. In fact, at a lot of customers, the question is, who owns this? Most frequently, we do see that network teams own the segmentation problem because you know segmentation is classically a networking problem, okay? The good news is you don't have to modify the network in any way, shape, or form. What organizations do, and what I always tell customers to do, is start by concentrating on the people and process. And what do I mean by that? Work out the process for how you're going to do the brownfield segmentation. Target like you know nine, ten applications and build that up. It's not very hard to do um, once you sort of target those people and process to go into your brownfield and you know take care of segmentation but without breaking any applications. That's Matt Glenn from Illumio. The UK today began to pilot its contact tracing app on the Isle of Wight. Matt Hancock, Secretary of State for Health and Social Care, gave the islanders a bucking up. The Telegraph quotes him as saying, We'll learn a lot, we'll use it to make things better, and we want to hear from you. Where the Isle of Wight goes, Britain goes. End quote. The British system is something of an outlier among the more recent approaches to contact tracing in that it represents a centralized approach to collection and analysis of data. The Telegraph has a description of how the app is intended to work. It's an opt-in system that uses Bluetooth for sensing proximity and that depends upon self-reporting of positive diagnoses. A skeptical piece in the register outlines some of the challenges confronting the NHSX-developed app and a second register article reports that NHS has informed Parliament that it intends to retain the data it collects even after the pandemic passes. The centralized collection and analysis, and the plans to continue to use data for research, has led to calls for close legislative oversight of the system, Computer Weekly says. The inadvertent exposure of a contact tracing database in India has aroused suspicion of such efforts' security and privacy, SC Magazine observes. The Washington Post has an overview of how such suspicions are currently being manifested around the world. In the U.S., while there are other projects under development, the joint Apple-Google Exposure Notification app has attracted the most interest. It's decentralized, opt-in, and will not use location tracking, Reuters reports. And finally, not all human-animal interaction during the pandemic has come in wet markets. There's been a striking rise in the rate of animal adoptions as people look for companions during a time of isolation, with Wired having gone so far as to say that animal shelters are empty. That's clearly an exaggeration, at least if taken generally and literally, but it does seem that pet adoption is up significantly. 
Since demand equals opportunity for criminals, there's also been a spike in what Naked Security calls puppy scams. These are like romance scams, only using cute pictures of dogs as the catfish. You send your money in for an adoption, and that money's gone with nary a puppy in sight. So, animal adoption has become popular fish bait during the pandemic, maybe even overtaking colloidal silver as a cure for what ails you. If you're looking for an animal to adopt, there are reputable local shelters who can put you in touch with a pet needing a home. There are still dogs and cats out there who could use a home. And animal, vegetable, or mineral. Don't be fooled by cute pictures that turn up in your email. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use. With zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications, so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. And joining me once again is Ben Yellen. He is from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security, and he is also my co-host over on the Caveat Podcast. Ben, great to have you back. Good to be with you, Dave. Uh, you have an interesting story to share this week. Uh, this comes uh, from uh, Motherboard uh, on the Vice website, uh, and it has to do with artificial intelligence and some stuff from the patent office. What's going on here? So... Last year, there were two uh, patents pending in front of the United States Patent and Trademark Office, one for a shape-shifting food container and Mm. another for an emergency flashlight. The interesting thing about these inventions is that they were not invented by a human being. They were invented by uh, Dabus, an artificial intelligence system. Now, the system was created by a researcher, a guy named Stephen Thaler. Uh, but the issue in front of the uh, patent court was whether you could grant a copyright or patent interest in something created by a non-human, created by artificial intelligence. And the Patent and Trademark Office said that inventions, uh, that only human beings can be inventors. Artificial intelligences uh, cannot be inventors, only natural persons 
uh, have the right to obtain a patent. Hmm. So until this decision came out, the law around this was pretty vague. Patent law referred to individuals as the entities that could be inventors. Uh, of course, the question was whether individuals just meant natural persons or artificial intelligence. I mean, Davis, uh, the artificial intelligence system, according to you know some definitions, might be considered an individual. And so finally, the Patent and Trademark Office has provided some uh, clarity here. What other researchers have said is they really should allow artificial intelligence to be able to be granted uh, patents and trademarks um, because it's sort of analogous to a senior advisor who has, you know, mentored a PhD student into coming up with an invention. That patent should belong to the student, the person who's learned from the inventor and not from the inventor, him or herself. Um, And I think what the court is saying here is you can't make that analogy. The PhD uh, student is a living, breathing human being, unlike uh, the robot artificial intelligence uh, in this case. So um sadly our robot friends and and (laughs) if you actually we we put off our robot overlords for a little while longer they're not able to get patents yes we've we've bided just a little bit of time uh it's so funny that on the front page of this article there's a picture of various robot toys and they just look so sad that their patents have not been granted um but alas uh only human beings uh can can be granted these patent and trademark interests you know, this remi- a couple of things this reminds me of. One of them they, they bring up in the article here. And, and the first is the there was the case with the monkey taking a selfie of itself and some folks trying to say that the monkey had copyright to the selfie. And ultimately, the copyright office said that no, only humans can be copyrighted. What I love about that is PETA went to bat for the monkey. Which I guess is, <laughs> is very on brand they for did. PETA. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's not yes. just trying to get us to stop, e- you know, eating meat. It's let's grant intellectual property rights to monkeys. Right. Um, but right. you know, good for them. But the other thing that this makes me think of, um, which is not quite so lighthearted, I suppose, is that um, I remember when um, the laws about gay marriage were making the rounds, hmm. and there was lots of discussion about that. Uh, you know, some folks on the right would say, well, if I, if two men can get married, two women can get married, why can't I marry a goat? Right? Why why can't we just, why can't it, and, and of course the, the response to that is, well, a, a goat is not a human being, a goat is not, uh, you know, can't have, um, there's no contract law that applies. Marriage is a contract and you can't have a contract between a human and a goat. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously a, a half-serious uh uh, argument to illustrate something but but this reminds me of that also in that you know humans have rights and machines and animals do not i don't want to get too deeply into existentialism here i can't <laughs> claim to be an expert but right. there are some things that are unique about human beings um we are aware of our own existence we have emotions we have feelings uh we have dreams and and aspirations and machines by and large, do not have those things. Although the more advanced the machines get, you know, as you say, they will eventually be our overlords. Maybe they'll start to develop <laughs> uh, some of those qualities. But yeah, I mean, there is a serious point in there that only humans can be human. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I sort of think that might be underlying the rationale f- uh, for this decision. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Well, it's all a simulation anyway, Ben. So we are living matter. in a simulation. Yeah, this is just one of many universes. And right. we happen to be in right. one of the worst ones right now, unfortunately. Oh, <laughs> well, there you go. Keep, wait, keep your chin up, Ben. Keep your chin up. I will try. <laughs> yep. All right. Ben Yellen, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.